welcome to Talk With Me. This is Marcia Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas on lawrencehits.com. And as you may know, if you listen to the show, my guests can be lots of different places. And in fact, it's still the case that our producer, Daniel Smith, and I are not even in the same state. Wow. Um, today, my guest is John Gorchalski, who is in New York who is an example of these connections that come through connections that come through connections, you know. Um, it's really wonderful to be able to be part of that web, to be able to have people hear each other from different places, maybe even end up doing something differently because they heard each other. Heard as an H-E-A-R-D. Just want to make sure I'm being clear here. Um, anyway, I just want to jump into this show. This is a week with so much going on. Um, it's, from my perspective, unfortunately, the week of the inauguration. It's a week of different kinds of protests in lots of different places. The very morning that we are recording is the morning of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which falls, of course, after Trump has... Uh, shown his, his own uh, stripes, as I might say, uh, in criticizing Congressman John Lewis, which is unbelievable to me to say that John needs to, to do something instead of talking. It's like, excuse me, do you know who this person is and what he's done for our country? Anyway, on that fine note, I want to have our guest, John, who is a writer, both prose and poetry, and has projects going on that other people are welcome to get involved with. Um, welcome, John. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for having me, Marcia. Glad to do this. Um, I always love to have my guests say a few words whatever, a few sentences, a few paragraphs, um, a little bit of introduction. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I, I, as you said, I, I, I do write. Um, I write both poetry and fiction. Uh, I live in Brooklyn, New York, uh, down, in, down in Bay Ridge, which, uh, like, the tour buses don't come to this part of Brooklyn. So uh, we're way down there. Uh, I have three books of poetry out uh, on various presses and two novels, The Librarian and uh, Wine Clerk, that are both out on Six Gallery Press. Uh, I do maintain, or has since 2008, maintained a, a blog called Wine Drunk Sidewalk that was a vehicle for me to put my poetry up there to continuously get me to create uh, work. Um, I quit the blog in 2016, but the election, um, I'm going to start it back up and use it as a vehicle for myself and other artists uh, to express themselves about how they're feeling in the current climate that we are in. And that's, that's pretty much me in a nutshell right now. Yeah, and I love I love the phrase "wine drunk sidewalk," because of course sidewalk to me is both walking in a sideway and a sidewalk surface. I'm always always I don't know those those different ways that words have meaning really fast. Yeah, well, my mind my, my <laughs> that I face planted on enough of them after having too much to drink. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. But, so tell us just a little bit about your your part of the art scene, like the, the art scene that you're connected to um, in Brooklyn and elsewhere. In, in Brooklyn? Uh, wow. I I hate to disappoint, but I, I wouldn't consider myself connected to an art scene in Brooklyn. It's um, My main connection, honestly, is still with the people in Pittsburgh, even though I've been living here since 2003 for the most part with a minor uh, foray into Buffalo for a couple of years. But it's 
I, um, I, I, I hate to disappoint that, that I, I'm not connected as well with Brooklyn writers. I've recently started doing poetry readings through um, Mike Geffner's uh, inspired word stuff over, over, but that takes place mostly over Manhattan. Uh, you know, you and I spoke briefly about um, doing a reading in March in, in Brooklyn. I don't have the specific dates, but that is probably one of the very first readings I've ever done in this borough for all the years I'm here. So it's 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 not something that I'm that I'm proud of or unproud of. It's just I guess it's just the way things worked out that I uh-huh. kind of maintain more of a solitary existence here. Well, and Pittsburgh has so much going on that that I've even become aware of. I have friends who recently, within the past year, moved to Pittsburgh for a job, and they were talking about their Pittsburgh bucket list. And I said, well, add to your Pittsburgh bucket list following the Litzburg calendar of arts events and head yeah, they do amazing. Reading and stuff like that. <laughs> they do, they do a ton of stuff there. I mean, I, I was born and raised and I moved out in my late twenties. So a lot of that stuff wasn't even going on when I was living there. Uh, it was, you know, I was with Chris, I remember you talked to him a few weeks ago and Chris Collins, uh-huh. he was talking about Chris Collins about being uh, kind of isolated and then working himself into the scene. And I think he did, uh, more so as I was getting ready to leave there. And so what they have got going on, they've, they've really built up in the last decade or so. And it's, it's, it's astounding to me. It's amazing actually. And so the, the connections and I, and I hear that with other people, some people have a lot going on in their immediate communities. Some people's art community is really more broad, widespread across, you know, whether it's countries or states, um, in terms of that, that handful of people who are most involved with them and their writing and editing and editing each other's work, that kind of first reader stuff. Lots of different things. I'm, I'm very clear that, that your writing is also part of, of like the activism. Um, lots of things, you know, when, when you mentioned the wine drunk, drunk sidewalk, blog as becoming a place for other writers as well um, and and to me that's that that's one of those things that's so important right now these four years in particular that that art is one of those ways that we create awareness and empathy and activate people you know it's so important so I want to I want to back back in time um, a bit so you know writing to me like Right, anything that you put out in public is like that takes a lot of guts, I think. And and art to me, because it's so personal, you know, it comes from some of a personal place. To me, it takes a lot of courage to say, Okay, this is this is something I'm putting out into the world. And and I wonder about your history with that, like where where it is in your life that you got this this notion that writing is who I am. It's something I need to be doing. Uh, where and when? I would say probably I, I started uh, getting very involved in high school. Um, not 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 being on a literary magazine as a, as an editor or anything like that, but writing poetry and and submitting it and just wanting to to express myself um, because I felt that I guess I had some things to say and I didn't have another vehicle for it. You know, I, I'm not a musician. I'm not a, an artist in, in the way that visually. And it just sort of, I guess, stemmed from there. I mean, there's been a lot of fallow periods, periods where I've not sent anything out, where I, you know, you can sit there and call yourself a writer, but you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Really around, I'd say, 13 years or so is when I, I made a decision to, like, 
jittery off of hot, I guess, and, and to discipline myself and to get up, start developing a schedule, start sending writing out, start, you know, bucking myself up when, when the rejections and the, re- you know, the rejections did come and still come in such, such wonderful theory that, um, <laughs> you know, you, it, it's about building up a thick skin over the years. You know, yeah. you can have three books of poetry, you can have two novels, you can have countless poems published, but, but you're going to get rejected more and more often than you ever need to be accepted. And yeah. really for me, it, 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 I started getting, when I, when I made a decision that this is what you do, this is what you do every day, this is what you do during that set period of time, and that's when it became kind of everything. Uh-huh. Well, and, and I have that glimpse from Allie, um, Allie Malinenko, who is also a writer and happens to be your life partner, um, yes, that, that you all have a very, you do have a discipline about your writing. And I, and I think that's really interesting. And, and so you said you, you, you made that decision. That's, to me, a big one to say, every morning I'm going to write. Yeah, for the world gets you. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's my logic behind it. It's I, I'm no good to anyone after a work day. Uh-huh. You know, I'm I'm good to have a, a casual conversation, have a few drinks on the couch, read, and probably fall asleep. And I, at the morning, uh, we we write pretty much think we're at like four thirty, four forty-five, and in front of that machine for about two and a half hours. And it it's the only time. It's before anybody touches me. You know, it's uh-huh. before people on the bus get me. It's before. Before a dog tries to attack me, it's before I get involved in whatever inanities that happen at the job, uh-huh. you know, or, or, or a tragic phone call. It's 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 early. It's me and, and the DJs on WQXR, the classical station here in, in New York. All right. That's what that's what the morning is. Yeah. So how how does that work for you in terms of every every day? Is is that pretty literal? That every day that you write in the morning. Except for weekends, I'm uh, you know I treat myself as a union employee, so I'm like I'm not working on the weekends, I'm not doing any overtime, like, I'm not coming home and working at night, like you know no one there's no one here to pay for it but me, so in my my lack of sleep, but it's um you know it it, it works it, it it has to if it's not making new writing and and I'm not I'm not gonna you know boast and say that there isn't a high level of mediocre writing that comes out of trying to produce every single day because you could simply go on my blog and see that a high level of mediocrity happens. It, it, you know, it, it, the publications are great, but it's, it's for myself. It's, it's to create, it's to, to get something out there in the world to, to say that, that I exist beyond the sort of finality of, exi- of, of the day to day. And that's, that's for me, what works. It does. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So part of what you're saying there is, is, the the writing is very personal in the sense of it it starts out as being for you, right? Yeah. Well, and I think then, you know it, it does become universal though. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, and and that's that's one of those things that I'm really interested in is is it's to me there whether it's writing or any kind of art that that there's this set of benefits, purposes, reasons for doing it. And there's another one, there's another set that comes from sharing it, whether it's at a, a reading or as something is published or a you know, performance of other kinds, that, that there's another level of benefit both for the artist and for the audience when things mm-hmm. are shared. And, and that, to me, is, is that beauty of saying people can 
can pay attention to this. They can make whatever meaning they make of it. But hopefully it inspires them in some way, whether it be to, to look at things differently, to do something different, you know, but, but that it, it becomes part of their new context, you know. That's really yeah. powerful. So, so do you do much performing of your, of your art? I know you said you've got something come up in Brooklyn in a couple months, but is that an important part of it is, or is it more the publication in terms of how you share? Um, how I share, I, I, I would say that I'm, I'm, I do perform poetry. Um, you know, the guys in Pittsburgh drag me back there uh, one to two times a year. And mm -hmm. I have been, reading more here in the city, which was, you know, really, it was Allie's decision. She's like, look, if, if I'm going to do things, I need to do things in the city I live in. And I sort of was like, okay. And, you know, sort of followed suit. And we <laughs> hooked up with Mike Geffner, who does Inspired Word. And it's, it's, he's been doing, he's been at that, I think, for 10 years. And it's a fantastic organization to be involved with to present your work. Um, is it, is performance important? Um, I, I like having my work read. I do. I love sending things out. I love hearing from people that they've read it or they've hated it or they liked it. And, but getting up on stage and, and reading poetry is still fundamentally one of the most difficult things that I do. I, am, I do not enjoy reading poetry to people. I get nervous. My legs shake. I consistently worry about the performance over the content of the writing. It's, it's not a happy uh, thing for me. Uh, okay. People laugh at me. My friends are like, come on, man. You know, you're just reading poetry to someone. But it's the hardest thing I do with all of this, I uh -huh. have to say. Uh -huh. I mean, and I understand its purpose, but it, yeah. it's still the hardest thing I do. Yeah. And, and, I, and I see that difference for different people, you know, that both, both about, you know, performing, writing, and, and I see it in a really different way that that um, my husband is very passionate about social political issues and about historic preservation and, and neighborhood issues and quality of life related to neighborhood, those kinds of things. And he's an amazing researcher, writer about those things, can prepare something, but he would prefer not to be the one who makes that statement to a city governing body. <laughs> I, I understand that. People are like, dude. Yeah. yeah. And whereas it's like for me, like that's the easy part. <laughs> so you're the other end. Yeah. Yeah. Allie, Allie sells, Allie sells much better on stage than I do. Uh, <laughs> writing. But much writing, better. I'm envious. <laughs> yeah. But you're writing and getting things published and getting things on your blog. I mean, that, that's, that's the way that's for you, the good way to share what you're doing. Sure. It's the way to communicate. It's the uh -huh. way I communicate best with the world. Uh-huh. So, yeah. so I should have asked you this before we started recording. Does that mean you'd rather not read on air? <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I've listened to enough of your shows. I know it's a part of the gig, so I, I absolutely don't mind reading on air. I'm in this bedroom by myself, looking at a map of the world. So it's not like I'm up in front of people who are like, "Oh, what's this goof doing?" You know, it's, so it's, okay. it's okay. It's fine. I mean, All you know, right. it's, it's. it's I, I, I realize in this climate and and how I'm putting myself out there with my blog and. That, that I have to change my attitude a little bit. I need to be out there more, I need to be talking with writers more, I need to be talking with artists more, people more in general, then I've sort of skirted that in the past. And you know, we were talking last night because we're, we're going to March this uh, Saturday, mm -hmm. that you, you, it's, this is a time that you have to put yourself on the line, more so yeah. than anything. Um, yeah. you know, especially I think as a white male in this country, 
and the damage that we've caused with this election that, that I have to be on the line. I have to, I have to take my hits because I deserve them. I do. And that's how I feel. Uh-huh. You know? But no, so, I can't answer your question. I don't mind reading. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cause it's, it's always, I think it, it kind of fills out the picture to actually hear some of somebody's work as well as talking about it, because it's, it's an obvious, you know, very important part of who you are uh, right. is, is a writer. Yeah. And I, and I find it interesting. That we're talking. Write, yeah. And, and that your writing is, is both poetry and novels. Um, a lot of people that I talk to have really settled in a certain genre that, and not all of them by any means, but, but a lot of people who have said, you know, well, I, started in this but really really it's poetry or really it's short stories or really it's memoir you know whatever it is and and several people who are visual artists as well as writers um which which is really intriguing to me because those seem to me to take really different i don't know not exactly different parts of the brain but there's something something pretty significant to me about visual art as as a a way of expression that seems different than putting it into words. Although sure. my, my favorite words are the ones that can have this combination that can mean multiple things. <laughs> no, I understand. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the visual arts. I wish I, you know, my preference would be to, to sit back and paint or I have a friend in Spain named Oscar Verona who makes some of the, the greatest collage work I've ever seen. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it, it's, I would love to, to do that over probably writing, but it's, it's not where the talent, I guess, if you want to call it talent and talent in quotes, where that lies for me. Uh-huh. It's, it, it is the written word we're over that, but I, I, I go to art museums all the time. I, it, I love the visual arts. That's my favorite. Well, and I was going to ask if, if, if art, visual arts, your friends, collages or other sometimes informs your writing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's Allie and I are art museum junkies. I mean, it, it, I, it informs my writing to the part where, you know, you want to you put something in words in the way you've seen something visual or, or to the point where it's in a very stereotypical fashion, you write a poem about a painting that, that you've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, the poet and novelist Gerald Laughlin does that a lot. He has a whole series of, of poems that are about paintings that he's actually looked at. And, you know, it comes down to uh, the admiration of seeing the artwork, of being inspired by it, in, for me, being awed by things I've seen uh, mm-hmm. in museums. Most recently mm-hmm. in New York, there's a Francis Picabia exhibit that's blowing my mind every time I get a chance to see it. So yeah, I mean, it definitely, you, you carry around that 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 idea that that someone created this, and at, at the very least, you'd like to strive for that form of greatness in your own talent way. Uh huh. So yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. Are are you ever? Do you think you might ever do a, that kind of a as as I've been taught the word ekphrastic uh, work that that the art and the poetry are presented together because they have informed each other one way or the other in terms of a book like that? Uh, I have actually, the only way I've, 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 I've seen other writers do that and the, no one's ever obviously approached me of saying, hey, let's work on this together. And, and I'm, I'm a shitty cartoonist, so I don't think anyone wants to see my cartoons along <laughs> with poetry. But I mean, I have had poems published in journals where the editors of the journal's piece, uh, piece of artwork with it, or a video, or even even uh, a photograph. So, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, I, I've been a party to that, but that was a separate editor's choice other than mine, and I, I think, you know, it works great. I, I love seeing that sort of pairing. 
Uh-huh. I was I was introduced to that that literal phrase ekphrastic poetry and and that concept by a writer in the Kansas City area, a woman who's originally from Mexico and teaches at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Her name is Jeanette Crasa, and Jeanette writes in Spanish still. She's fluent in English, but she writes in Spanish, and she has books that are um, where her poetry is paired with paintings, and there's a certain painter that she's collaborated with some, and she has then this painting and the Spanish poetry, and she has another poet whose native language is English actually do the translation poem rather than her doing it herself, which is really fascinating. And then there is, just in talking to people about projects they do, um, a poet who was talking about a project she was involved with where rather than art being the connection as a painting or something with the poetry, the experience was this set of poets, including one who in her, um, her, her work life, in addition to writing, is a massage therapist. So the massage therapist poet did massage for these other poets. And the, the addition, the collaboration is poems inspired by the massage experience. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> you know, it's, because it's different things come up. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I was thinking about that when you, you talked about how you write in the morning before the world touches you. And I was thinking about, I don't know how it is for you. And I'll ask that question. But so, so how do the things that you remember as dreams affect your writing in the morning? Oh, let's see. Let's, let's, let's provide it. I'm not passing out in the evening from uh, either cheap uh, vodka or just tiredness. Uh, I should say that uh, if anything, if I'm, if I'm dreaming, I, I may have an, an eerie feeling. I have at times, uh, it, I've written poems verbatim from, from dreams, um, but they're at the bottom of a stack. I tried in a very Kerouacian way to keep a dream journal for a while, but uh, that, so I did actually try to wake up like, as he did. And like, you know, first thing you do is, is write down the dream that you remembered as best as you can. But that was one of those things that sort of peered off on like a Sunday morning where I was like, you know what, I never had a bad dream. <laughs> I'm not going to write about that. But I, yeah. uh, they, they, if they, they do anything, it may set the mood for me. If I, if I have bad dreams or um, the writing may take shape in, in sort of more of a darker manner, that would be a perfect morning to write a poem about Trump. Um, you know, it, I, I, can, I can only speculate that, that it, you know, everything that you do informs what you do. So right. I, I'd say an emotion more than anything else or just a mindset for how the day is going to go uh-huh. could happen. So what kinds of themes are coming up in your writing in these past few months? What kind of themes? Themes, yeah. Uh, lately, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to you know, because of, of the blog and the, and the way that it's going to change come this week, I'm trying to write things that are political but not, you know, I, I like to use humor in my writing a lot. So I, I don't want to be beating people over the head with Trump this, Trump that, country, you know, and, and try to find fly little ways, like maybe maybe insert a little bit of politics while I'm standing behind somebody in a grocery line who's complaining about stuff. Um, you know, I had a poem where, where I went and exchanged coins at a coin machine in a bank, 
and uh, the woman, instead of giving me just like the $20 bills for the coins I exchanged, so they give me things in like tens and fives as if I was going to go buy like a bottle of liquor or go pay a bookie off. So I kind of was like, okay, there's a judgment there. Maybe I can make that into a poem. These are poems I'm actually writing. So this is the kind of stuff I'm, I'm doing. I, I like to be informed by my day-to-day. Um, I always say that of all the poets I read, my favorite writer in the world was Harvey Picar, who wrote the comic American Splendor. Because the man could turn the mundane into art, and that's the kind of stuff I try to do day to day, is, okay, that person that really bugs me in the shopping line, let's make art about that. That guy that would not shut up on the cell phone on the bus, let's make that into art and not have that be something that tortures you day to day, day to day basis. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm well, doing in the morning. And, and I was asking because I have noticed how intense and anxiety-ridden my dreams have been in the past two months. I mean, it's just like, wow, I know where that's coming from, and I hate it, but that's what it is. Um, You mentioned humor, which is a hugely important thing to me, and and I wonder if this is a time when you'd be comfortable sharing a poem to, to let us experience a little bit of how this works for you. Sharing a poem? Yeah. Sure. Let me let me try to find something that, that might have that bent a little bit. All right. Here, um, I'll be. I'll try. This is something that, that I've written recently that I will. Uh, I'm trying to take both tracks from that. The that will probably end up on the blog once we start. Okay. It um it's called hacked, and uh, here's here's the poem. Hacked. I think the Russians hacked my soul, and it got drunk and started arguing with the wife. They hacked my year, and there was never enough vodka to heal the pain. The Russians hacked my ability to write a halfway decent poem. It's been nothing but driveling shit since July. And by the looks of this little ditty, my situation is not on the up and up. I'm willing to bet the Russians hacked the dude blasting music in front of my apartment. Because no one could be such an inconsiderate asshole without a little bit of tampering. It's safe to assume the Russians hacked into Trump. Into that vacuous ego and gold-plated vanity. That orange blob pit of flesh that never seems to be filled by anything but his own gross bully pit of insanity. Just like they hacked my dinner last night. Four bites into the meal and I was riding the porcelain god for hours with a burning asshole to boot. The Russians hacked the white working class and replaced them with a diverse nation. They sat back grinning, waiting for the backlash. They even got to my morning DJ, early January, and he's still playing holiday shit. They hacked the climate for sure. Maybe the Russians hacked the moon. It doesn't burn as bright in the night sky as it used to. Even the few stars you see here in the city seem to be a little dim. Just like the people walking around with their heads always buried into their phones, buried up their asses. Former madmen and mad women tamed by streaming shows and fake news sent from bunkers in Moscow, a skyscraper in Manhattan, by supermodel-looking spies and cable anchors. The Russians have most likely hacked our democracy, or what little of it we had left. The parts the politicians here hadn't already taken. All that walking and talking malware in Washington, D.C., licking the boot heels of corporations in Wall Street, puerile servants of the almighty dollar, the two-party virus of illness, greed, and apathy, who we can't blame on any nation, anybody else but our own damn selves. So that was that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> there, I mean, there's, there's, for me, such, such that, like, but it's all true what you're saying. <laughs> Uh, can't blame the Russians for everything, you know. You got what I see day to day in DC is is just as horrifying. Uh-huh. You know, in, in my opinion.
opinion, the, the GOP is, is our biggest and uh, most bold uh, domestic terrorist organization that we have in this country. Uh, I've never seen a group of people that are so willing to hurt their citizens for absolutely no reason. Yeah. It, it yeah. I mean, I, but I will say that I learned things that I had not known before about the whole political system during these, this campaign time and you know that the DNC is backing Hillary and not giving Bernie his his due, and it's like I didn't, I yeah. naive me, I didn't know that the DNC chose sides before the convention. It's like really, you didn't know that? It's like no, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, we we've all learned a lot about how our political machines work. I mean, yeah. when when average citizens can have conversations about the electoral college now, let's let's. Uh, <laughs> Well-informed, I guess, would you know, maybe that's a good thing for this country to be well-informed about something now. Yeah, I mean, I think some people would say that's, that is part of one of the, the if we want to say there is any silver lining, it's that some people are more aware and more willing to do something now that they know things aren't as they seemed. Um, I yeah. want to go ahead and take our break now. We're going to sure. hear from a couple of local Lawrence, Kansas businesses that sponsor LawrenceHits.com. And then we will be right back for more conversation and another poem or two from John Grachowski there in Brooklyn, New York. Um, so listeners, hang on. And this is my chance to say thank you to Daniel Smith, who produces the show. Thank you, Daniel. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Talk With Me. This is Marcia Epstein, and today I might describe my guest as Brooklyn-based, but Pittsburgh at heart, <laughs> John Grajewski, who is a writer of poetry and novels and has this blog that's going to transform, Wine Drunk Sidewalk, transform, that is, from primarily his blog to a call kind of for submissions. So will you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, the the submission, the, the new the new phase of it, or yeah. or the, the the well, honestly, it, it I had um I've been keeping the blog since 2008, and as you know, we talked earlier, it was, it was kind of keeping a prod myself to keep creating art every day. And after a number of years, it, it had served its purpose, and I would stopped it uh, this year because I I simply was like, okay, I can't keep making things just to throw them up there, and I wanted to focus on other things. Well, then November happened. And I, I felt pretty powerless, I think, like everybody else did. And, and I was not surprised by the outcome. I had been saying for the whole year that he was going to win. I, wow. I, guess I, I don't know. I, people see things outside their doors differently than I do. But I, I, there's nobody more American than Donald Trump, you know? Um, so oh, that's a terrible statement felt, about our country. <laughs> I felt that the only thing I could do was, was what I do, which is writing. And I wanted to reopen the blog and I wanted it to have a focus. So I changed the name from Wine Drunk Sidewalk to Wine Drunk Sidewalk Shipwreck in Trump, Trump Land. But I realized that if this man actually does make it four years, that's 1,460 days of art. Because I wanted to make it a daily blog instead of just Monday through Friday and taking the weekends off. And I realized that I, I write, but I don't think I can come up with 1,460 poems. So I... I took a chance. I'm opening it up to other writers. I, I created a wine drunk sidewalk at gmail.com uh, email address. I'm asking people to send me poems, rants, uh, short fiction, a piece of artwork that I can you know, easily get on a blog spot blog. Uh, and I want to, to open this up for people to 
to express themselves in a way. And if they want to use it as a publication, fine. I, I don't know how much you know, clout I have in that capacity, but I do want this to be a forum for people to express themselves. Myself and other writers out there, other artists out there, other Raycon tours out there that, that do the best thing on the paper. And uh, that's going to start um, on the 19th. I'm going to start the blog with a letter that my father-in-law wrote to his daughters, which he's, he's being gracious to let me use it, which was just a moving letter about raising daughters in America and expecting so much more. And, you know, I'll, I'll you know, let you see later on the week if you go on the blog, but yeah. it's just an eloquent piece of writing from a man that I've known for 20 years and love. And, and I, you know, he's going to have a publication come this week. So uh, I, I, that's how I want to start it with, with sort of a hopefulness before we get into the dirt. Uh-huh. So, you know, because it is a hopeful letter overall. Okay. So I will do my little part of sharing that link and your Gmail to encourage people. Thank you. In the Kansas City area, we've just had a release of a small book called Arts Uprising um, that is a similar kind of a project where people who are really involved with the Kansas City spoken word community in particular put out a call to writers and other artists to be part of this response to the election. And that has just become available on Amazon. And and I know that that I, probably through Gmail or messaging, I've, I've mentioned to you, and I've said this several times to uh, listeners of, of, during different shows, that I'm, I'm part of this thing called the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. And that's another bringing people together to do really one of the highest priorities is create belonging by valuing arts and culture in decision-making, whether it's working against gentrification of Chinatown in New York City, or in the case um, coming up, having, having people from USDAC host story circles to create this set of stories, to build this body of stories from across our country um, related to people's sense of belonging and not belonging um, to become part of a poetic address that is called the People's State of the Union. And those kinds of activities, the story circles, will be happening in different places from January 27th to February 5th. Um, and and so there, I see these things. I, I have, through the show, thanks to Wolfgang Karsten's uh, Epic Rights Press, I've, I've um, become friends with Zarina Zabriskie, who's a, a writer um, based in San Francisco. And she is part of a founder of a group called the Arts Resistance, um, another group that's that's bringing artists together in different kinds of ways and, and just sharing information. Um, Zarina, as a writer, as a person who was raised in Russia, um, who was educated in Russia, who was schooled in propaganda and more literally schooled, um, if you read her blogs on medium.com, you will see that that was part of her college education in terms of what she was supposed to be doing um, as a person who ended up doing some translation and other things in government and business affairs in Russia. Um, her, her, her idea now is to write, not to give direction or answers, but to give information. And and I see that as, as what a lot of artists I'm encountering are doing is getting information out in different ways you know, not saying you must do this, your your act must look like that. It's saying 
you need to be aware, open your mind, open your heart, and you need to do what is the right thing for you to do. And hopefully there will be a lot of actions of different kinds. Some that that may seem ridiculous to people. What about these women who are wearing pink pussy hats as they've been labeled for the march? You know, well, that makes a statement, folks, after something that came out of Trump's mouth, you see. Um, and so if that gets your attention in whatever way, then good, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because there's a lot that needs to be done. The the worst thing is complacency. And I know in this week with the with the birthday, with the anniversary, the the celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, with this day that's declared his day, that 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 there's a lot of reminder of of his his quotes related to silence being the worst thing. Complacency is not a good thing. Um, we may feel overwhelmed at times and need to take breaks, and that's understandable. But but overall, we need to pay attention and we need to be part of motivating and doing goodness and kindness. And, and we can do that. You know, we can all do that. Right. I, so, I, I agree with you. Look, if our democracy is at, at a threat, we can't let it be at a threat of a blue being moron like this. I mean, mm-hmm. of, of anything that's going to take down democracy, it's not going to be that asshole. Mm-hmm. You know, then, then so you, you're, you're right. Complacency, that, there's no place for complacency anymore. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you do what you, you have the talent to do. You get out there, you march, you protest. You, you let this orange-faced moron know that, that you're not going to win. Yeah. No way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's important because we're talking about, you know, people's lives. I mean, yeah. uh, so so we want people to, to be doing things individually. We want things together. And, and your blog is one of those places where they have the opportunity like you, they may not be able to write every day or produce art every single day that they would want to throw out to the world, but they may have some pieces that would be great for the wine drunk sidewalk blog spot. And so we encourage them to share that and to read that, you know, and to be fueled by knowing you're not alone in concerns, you know. I think that's yeah, always absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So how about another poem from you? Sure. Do you uh, you want me to keep with the political bent or uh, or uh, something else? It's your call. Whatever you would like what. to share with our listeners. Let's do. Let's do something that's not. I'm not yelling about politics. <laughs> this is called poem to Cindy X Garcia, age approximately five and a half. Cindy, what is there to say? Except that we're both pretty tired coming home on this evening train. Only I don't have my mother with me to try and keep waking me up like you do. She's only doing it because if you sleep now, you'll be a terror when she tries to put you to bed. It's kind of like how I feel those nights struggling to keep my eyes open, at least until 10 o'clock. Frustrated at all of these inabilities and limits I seem to be acquiring year by year. Cindy, it's hard at your age, and it's getting harder at mine. And I don't know how you feel, two parents working, and I know how you feel, two parents working full-time, or maybe even just one, up and out the door before most kids are even awake, back home to the insult of everyone's warm yellow window because you've spent mornings and afternoons shucked off to daycare or lousy babysitters that your parents can't really afford. You know they're working hard, but it's tough only seeing them when the sun comes down, when you're tired and on this train tonight, where thankfully no one is making any noise. Remember, they don't want to pay someone else to raise you either. Cindy, I wish that I could say that it gets better, that the tiredness abates, 
But if I have to be honest with you, life comes down to small pockets of joy tucked between the sadness and strife. And before you know it, you'll be putting your mom to bed or saying goodbye for the long run. So don't give her too much shit right now because she seems like a nice lady with soft, brown, loving eyes. Cindy, I can see the tears welling up as she keeps trying to sit you up straight. But there's no need to cry because that is just what we do trying to live this life we've been given. We endure. We make magic happen when we can. And there's still a few more good hours left in the day for us both. Dinner, television, or maybe a decent book. So let's not squander this little girl on tears and petty disagreements. Let's do as mom says and get up. Let's get off this train tonight and get back to the art of living. Until tomorrow, Cindy. Until tomorrow. Uh So tell us about some of your small pockets of joy. Seriously. Uh, Yeah, what are uh, some of the things that fuel you? uh, Well, we talked about going to art museums. It's Uh one of my favorite things in the world is going to art museums. Uh, I especially love having access to the MoMA. Uh Uh, Some of the stuff that they've done this year, uh, I don't know if you know Bruce Conner, an artist, visual arts, painting, uh, sculpture, just that's one of my small pockets of joy is going to art museums. Music, of course. Uh, I love, I'm always listening to music. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a Luddite, but I invested in a iPod Classic about six years ago, and to, to walk around with every bit of music that I have on me is, is a small joy. Um, I, I, enjoy, um, I enjoy drinking vodka on the couch, I'll be honest with you. I hope <laughs> have a couple drinks a day. A couple double shots, and, and you know what? They talk about how quickly the work, spirit world just goes away from you. Um, film. I, I love film. I love foreign films. I, I just recently, not a foreign film, but recently my wife and I saw Moonlight in the theater, mm-hmm. and I thought that it was one of the most beautiful pieces of, of art that I've seen in a while on the screen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, I guess the, the small pockets of joy kind of all connect, as you were saying earlier, with arts, and, 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 and it all influences, but at the same token, I, I'm glad that I can get some appreciation out of it where it isn't me sitting in front of a computer and making it, or me making an, a painting. That's I love that, that I can appreciate art for what it is and that it does make me happy. Yeah, yeah. That's lovely. And, and just because you haven't shared, what, what is your day job, as I will say? Oh, this is going to sound bad now. I'm a public librarian. Okay. <laughs> so, maybe I should be having those drinks on the couch. Because I'm a public librarian in New mm-hmm. York City. So I'm dealing with the New York City public on a daily basis. And... I am probably one of the world's biggest introverts, so so having to make conversation on a daily basis all day, having the same conversations with the same people, though I love serving the community, can can be wearing. Um, I, I love the job. I, I, got, I became a librarian in my 30s, so I had already been out of college for a decade working retail jobs, warehouse jobs, the kind of mundane task you get when you make the uh, stupid decision to be an English lit major. Uh-huh. Uh, so I did this because I, there was no way I was going to survive. I, I was in my 30s and said, look, I'm not going to make it in the work world if I don't do something that I, I would enjoy. And being a librarian and being in some of the diverse communities in, in this borough, I mean, my, the people that come into my library are, are, are uh, Asian Americans, uh, Muslim people, uh, and, and primarily Hispanic people. And, you know, to, to, to get to deal with people on a different basis uh, every single day is, I love doing it. I mean, it's, you know, if I have to work a job, then it it might as well be this. Yeah. So what's your library like? The the library that you work in, that is. It is a small library in, uh, in lower Brooklyn. Um, It's things have changed in the library. I don't know much you go in a public library, but 
people think we're quiet, we're shushing people. Uh, you don't shush people in the library anymore. You, you, when the kids come in, kids come in after school like they've never come in before because of the access to computers and they're, it's loud and cacophonous and, and people are on their phones. And it's, you know, it's, you're probably better off going to Starbucks if you want to quiet, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's, it's busy. We, we do a lot of programs for children. You know, you see, if you live in your own bubble and you have your phone and all your gadgets and you, you don't see that there are people in the 21st century that still do not have computers in their home. Right. There are kids in the 21st century that still have to come to a library and do their homework and take advantage of our printers that come every day for programs because they may live in a, in a box apartment in Brooklyn and don't have Legos. You know, they come to our place, they watch movies. That, you know, it's the kind of stuff that, that we do on the day-to-day basis that's mm-hmm. what makes up my library branch. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. I, I love libraries and, and the library that we have here in Lawrence, Kansas was expanded several years ago and and it's an interesting thing knowing that there's this one part that that people not everybody wants books on paper or newspapers on paper those kinds of things anymore you know and so so what do libraries you know do if if people are really only wanting ebooks that they can reserve online you know (laughs) those Mm -hmm. kinds of things and and the that reminder that libraries i think have always been a place that bring people together and people of all different kinds of backgrounds you know yes, that they are in, in my community even though it's the city is i don't know somewhere around eighty thousand people there is actually only one city library and so it's it's always to this point it's always been like that and then this economic climate in kansas we're not going to be building the library anytime soon so you know so so people cross paths who wouldn't necessarily do that you know they're there in the the kids in the same room you know that we have a big teen room and and a kids room you know and and spaces that are used for different kinds of meetings and different kinds of things the library hosts our, our library chose to put in um, special lights in the auditorium for readers uh, to deal with people, for, to help people who have seasonal affective disorder, that, that those kinds of lights to, to help give people the vitamin D and the things that you get from light that's harder that's to come by. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's this cool gathering place of people. And I love that that's, that libraries hopefully will always, always have a role. Uh, yeah. Because we I hope need so. <laughs> connection, you know, we need to be face to face with people, um, yeah. as opposed to that's only doing what I'm learning. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, a lovely place to work at public library. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. Does your library host um, readings? Readings. Uh, yeah. The central library. The central library does that. Our, our branch library. Uh, it's it's always harder in a branch library because I think, I think while people use it as their community meeting place to, to do their, their own business, uh, uh-huh. getting, getting a, a, the kids are always, I, I worked at a, a previous branch in the, uh, up in, uh, 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 Northern part of Brooklyn. And I did do for poetry month. We did do readings for the teens and things like uh-huh. that. Um, the, the, the branch I'm at now, I, I, I've tried. I don't think that the, the, the some of the people are very interested in that kind of stuff. So we, we kind of keep it, where where they're they're just doing more activities there mm-hmm. than than mm-hmm. that. But I mean, in April we certainly promote Poetry Month. I was at mm-hmm. a 
another branch, and during that month, I was putting up a poem a day in this in this thing, so that people could come in and read a different poem by a different poet every day. Uh-huh. So on 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 my end, on the ground end, yeah, where we we do promote the stuff, and and you, it it, it depends on what neighborhood you're in, what takes off and what doesn't is really. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So you work in a library. You you get up, you write for two hours, and then go to your library job, and then you get to come home and chill. <laughs> yeah, and then and, and, uh, three times a week I jog about four miles a day. Way to go! Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's starting to wear me out at forty-two. I'm I'm, I'm as, as tired as I've ever been, but I do more at my age now than I think the twenty-two-year-old would ever have even bothered to do. Uh huh. So yeah, it's it's a it's a busy week. Yeah, very good. And then those art museums, I guess that's part yeah. of your weekends because you have that that time when you don't have to write at four thirty in the morning. <laughs> that is, yeah, I know. They're sleeping in like Ali will I'll get up at seven o'clock. She's like, You're up at seven, I'm like, you don't understand that's sleeping in to us. <laughs> you know, like seven o'clock in the morning is, is a ch- extra two hours of sleep for me most days. <laughs> <You know. laughs> I feel great at seven. All right. All right. And so you're going to keep writing, hopefully keep motivating other people to to use whatever their actions, their voice, whatever, to really work for things to be good and safe and everybody to know they belong in this country. And everybody belongs in this country. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a wonderful thing that art is part of that part of part of what creates that belonging, part of what reminds people that they do Absolutely. have a place and that they're not having to face these things all by themselves. So so I love that, that, you know, both the blog that welcomes people to submit their work as well as to read um, and that you work in a library and, you know, that you, that you are a frequenter of museums, that, that you really are out there with people, even though you may do it quietly as someone who identifies as an introvert, but that, that you are out and about, which to me is, is an important thing that, that we can do that. Oh yeah. We need my, Ali and I live in a, in a, in a heavily Muslim community and actually an hour after we're off of this, they're having a, a, a big March in Bay Ridge here because of our community and because of the people that are, are going to be threatened, you know, come, uh-huh. come this Friday at 12.01 PM. Yeah. You know, so we're going to that today, and then we have the women's march this Saturday that we're going down to. So it's a, it's it's there's an introvert, and there's time to not be anymore. So uh-huh. that, that's the track I'm taking. Yeah, that that is important. That that even that you're doing some things that maybe aren't the most comfortable for you, but you not only feel the responsibility, but are following up. You know yeah. that that's that's that reminder, and and I remember. I can't remember at the moment who whose words these are, but that reminder that that we have to do things outside of our comfort zone. You know that yep. that's really important that we don't make a difference just by playing it safe. And I agree and with I, that. I think that there are lots of different kinds of conversations. You know, you said early on that as a white male, you feel certain kinds of responsibilities, and and I think that one of the things that some of us really, some of us who are white, didn't recognize how really bad so many systems still are, how much institutional and and more overt racism that there is in our country, because we hadn't, as a country, been talking about it 
without, with the exception of incidents like, um, unfortunately, violence that involved police. We weren't talking a lot about what's really going on in our country, and now we are. I, I don't. I, I'd like to think that that uh, white people weren't oblivious. I, 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 but I do. I do blame us for for allowing it. I mean, it, it, it's impossible to, to live in America and and not see overt institutional racism every day. Um, but but you know, walking past it and and not doing anything or not saying anything or, or to the to, from the very small thing of, of not telling your coworker that, that you know they they shouldn't say the things they're saying to to going out and marching and I don't know I don't know do we, do we let this once this monster's gone does everything fall back under the the sheet again or or, or do we keep going forward the way that we we wouldn't we finally need to. And obviously our hope is that we keep moving forward because I would say like, I think it was last January, I was at a, a community meeting that was about um, diversity and race and, and bringing people together. And I will say I can be embarrassed, but I'll say it, I was shocked when I learned that uh, one of the panelists is an administrator at, the University of Kansas, and he happens to be African-American. And he talked about his experience looking for homes in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, since he was relocating from another part of the country for this job, and that he realized that he was not being shown houses because of his race, that there were houses that he was not being shown by the realtor. And he chose not to identify the company that he had first been in contact with, but he did say that he made a point of talking to the owner of that agency and and you know proclaiming his dismay at the way he had been treated. And and I you know it's like call me naive, but but I it had not occurred to me that a highly educated person of higher income who happens to also be African-American would be treated that way in this community that I live in. That's the thing that I think that people have been saying for years that, that is that there is this treatment and and it's, I don't know if it's naivete so much as, as just, you you think people, you think your country is better than it is. And, and you know, you're, you're dealing with a place that was founded on the principle that women were property and people weren't human. So, okay, if you have to go all the way back to the, to the writing of those documents, where as, as wonderful and eloquent as they are, they're, they're in some way, shape, or form sort of a lie that we've been carrying around for 240 years. Yeah. You know, uh, it's the only thing I can say to that. Yeah. And so we have an unfortunate call to action because there's such huge uh, consequences from this election, and we're already seeing with... Um, you know, this idea about, well, we'll just repeal this healthcare stuff. It's like, yeah, and we, we will take away the protection for people who have pre-existing conditions. It's, yeah, gleefully it's they're doing it. Yeah. Gleefully they're doing it. You know, it, it's, Paul Ryan was, was face-to-face with a man who, yeah. whose cancer was, was, was uh, helped taken care of via the ACA, and the next day he's, he's rubbing his hands and gleefully passing laws to, to help repeal it. I mean, what kind of a human being are you? Yeah. Who, are, who is your master if yeah. you're Paul Ryan? Yeah. And so for all of us, you know, we can pay attention. We, we have to sort of parcel it to a certain extent. You know, I mean, you were honest that 
the end of the day that that you are tired and i think that that there's a there's a part of we can't immerse ourselves in in the news all of our non-working hours non-working non-sleeping hours but we also need to pay attention and we need to find things we can do i think the worst thing for me was probably for the really probably for the first full two weeks after the election the emotion was so intense for me the fear the the disillusionment, all those things. And I didn't have any, like, how do I work through this? What do I do? You know, and, and I encourage everybody to find the things that you can do. And some of them are going to be person to person. And those are very important. You know, I can think about conversations I've had that I wouldn't have had before the election. When I went to the, the Mediterranean market here in Lawrence, Kansas, which is a lovely little small specialty grocery and small restaurant. And I asked the owner, I said, you know, how has it been for you and, and your friends, your family, you know, and, and we talked about that for a while. You know, I wouldn't have thought to ask that question before this election. And, and it was I, important to have that conversation. I, mean, I had kids, and like I said, in my library all summer, just saying that, that Trump was going to send them back to their country and they were yeah. born here. You know, it, it's, and I, I do, I do have deal with a lot of of, of Muslim Americans, and this is a, this is a fear, and and I try to express that on a day to day basis. I'm hearing kids saying this stuff to me. Yeah, they are afraid. I mean, this isn't yeah. just stuff on TV. This monster has 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 really scared these kids. Yeah, and sadly, some of us are hearing stories from our schools where kids have been told those kinds of things by other kids in their classes in their schools that yeah. you know you're going to be sent back to Mexico, or, you know, and they may not even have any connection to Mexico, but just assumptions that are hateful. So on that note, I want to get back to, there are things we can all do. And and one of them that you, you're inviting artists. So say this one more time, because I think it's so important to have some action steps. Artists and who want to send information for this blog, and everybody can read it. And what is Absolutely. this blog of yours? It's winedrunksidewalk.blogspot.com. And the email to send me your stuff, please, in the attachment, is winedrunksidewalk at gmail.com. Just think wine drunk sidewalk. I know it's, it's words that kind of go together in awkward ways, but we want, we want it. We want the artwork. We want your rants. We want your, your photographs. We want, we want it. We want, to, we want to let this man know for 1,400 days that, that right. he does not represent the United States. Thank you so much. And you You're said welcome. this Thank is, you for having me. Yeah, and, and this blog is renewing on January 19th. So that would yeah. be on this very Thursday. Day zero, thank I'm you. calling it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know you, listeners. I hope that you, you have too. You know, and, and again, we all can do things. We all yes. can do things. So do them. The small okay. ones are important. The big ones are important. You know, do it. Even if you're not sure it's going to be effective, it might be. So do it. Thank you. Thank you, John. So Thank you. Listeners.